Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Happy New Year. Again, I hope it is a wonderful year for all of you and one that is happy and healthy and safe, safer. I am also wanting to take this time to remind you if you want to be involved in the support group that I run every other Wednesday night on Zoom for former cult members, for families and friends of those in cults, for people coming out of manipulative relationships, email me at my private email, BernsteinLMFT, LMF is in Frank, T, at gmail.com, or feel free to call me and leave a message on my office line. 818-907-0036. I look forward to hearing from you. And please know that if there isn't an opening in the group, there will be soon. And I'm happy to put you on a wait list if needed. So there will always be a resource for you if your needs fit into what we are providing in the group. I have received some questions about providing a support group for people in the UK. It is certainly something I'm open to. People from England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales have been in touch with me to ask if I can put together a support group for them that, of course, will meet at a different time in my time zone, Pacific Standard Time, to accommodate you. And there have been a couple of people who have let me know that they're interested If there are more of you out there listening or if you know of others who might be interested, please be in contact with me or have them be in contact with me on my private email at BernsteinLMFT, LMF as in Frank T, at gmail.com to let me know that you would like to have a spot in that group. So please be in contact with me. Let me know if you have any interest. And if there are enough people, I'll get it going. Because we took the week off last week for the New Year's, a much needed break for myself and my team, we are doing the December shout outs a week late. My apologies, but I hope you understand. I want to make sure to thank our newest subscribers, the people who are going to help fortify the show, keep it going for the future. Thank you so much to Terry, to Robert, to Change, to Adi and Alex. It is so much appreciated, so necessary. And I am so grateful. And my team and I say a sincere thank you. And if you would like to do something to support the show for free, you can also now rate us on Spotify and help us reach new listeners. It only takes one click, but it makes a big difference. If you're listening on Spotify now, simply go to our podcast page and click on the star icon in the lower left. Now from my guest today. You get to hear part one of my two-part conversation with Mark Potok. For 20 years, Mark Potok 
helped lead the Southern Poverty Law Center's premier operation monitoring the extreme right in the United States. Potak served as director of the Southern Poverty Law Center's intelligence project and later was a senior fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center and editor-in-chief of its award-winning intelligence report, Investigative Magazine. He left the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2017. He is an expert in really knowing about organizations we need to track and follow. The Klan, neo-Nazism, the militia movement, Holocaust deniers, and other aspects of the radical right. In addition to editing the magazine, Potok was a key spokesman for the SPLC, a well-known civil rights organization based in Alabama. If you haven't heard of it, check them out. And testified before the Senate, the Helsinki Commission, the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights, and in other important venues. Before coming to the Southern Poverty Law Center in 1997, Potok spent almost 20 years as an award-winning reporter at newspapers including USA Today, the Dallas Times-Herald, and the Miami Herald. While at USA Today, he covered the 1993 siege in Waco, the rise of militias, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, and the trial of Timothy McVeigh. In 1996, his editors nominated him for a Pulitzer Prize for a series of stories on racism in Texas public housing. Potak has been the recipient of numerous journalism and other awards, including the 2010 First Place Green Eye Shade Award for Best Investigative Magazine Article from the Society of Professional Journalists. Potak has been interviewed thousands of times by the media, appearing at one time or another in most major American print, radio, and television news programs, along with some 25 documentaries. He also has been cited regularly by leading foreign media, scholars, and other book authors, both in the U.S. and abroad. In 2018, he joined the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right as a senior fellow. And you get to hear from him today. Here's Mark now. I'm so happy to have Mark Potok with us today. He is someone who speaks about what I consider to be all the important subjects to talk about. So we have a lot to talk about and a lot we have in common from the work that we do, but from different angles, because I'm dealing with it from the psychological perspective, counseling work, dealing with the fallout, working with families, couples people who are dealing with loved ones who have gotten involved in movements of one sort or another. And a lot of the subjects that you, Mark, deal with in, in real time, in real life, are subjects that I try to cover actually on this podcast, from radicalization to misogyny, the whole MGTOW incel movement, and cults, of course, uh, your coverage of Waco. I remember working with some people who had been in the Branch Davidians. So I feel like we've mirrored our kind of corresponding professions, but again, from different angles and also using the intelligence report that you were the editor of for many years as part of a teaching tool when I was teaching students about cults and about indoctrination. So I want to thank you for the work that you've done that really helps to, in many ways, support the work that I'm doing. So welcome to the show. 
Well, thanks so much for having me, Rachel. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad to be here. So glad to have you. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about a conversation I had many years ago with Deborah Lipstadt, who some people might have heard of. She is an expert talking about the Holocaust. I remember she said, it's a very interesting thing right now that I have to spend almost half my time proving that it happened before I can even talk about the details about why and how and what we can learn from it. And she actually had said that she wasn't going to be a part of a dais anymore where there was going to be a Holocaust denier speaking with her as part of someone presenting something that they thought was going to be then fair-minded. So how do we address, to start out with, the people who are dealing with sort of the smoke and mirrors, a lot of the smoke and mirrors that we saw during the last presidency of the, you said this, no, I didn't, this never happened. How does that get addressed sort of in in the public eye? Well, we are all forced to do as Deborah Lipstadt has done, right? I mean, her book, I know Deborah, and her book, Lying About the Holocaust, was really important. But what she, she says right in the introduction, right at the beginning of the book, she recounts the story of, uh, first of all, being asked by journalists to be on some panel where one side and the other are going to be presented, one side being the Holocaust occurred and the other being that it didn't occur. And her saying, obviously, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, this is an absolutely crystal clear uh, event that's like massively documented. Uh, and yet she felt ultimately she had to write the book calling out Holocaust deniers because Holocaust denial had become a massive thing globally in this country in particular, but globally as well. So, you know, I spent a lot of my career, in particular my years at the Southern Poverty Law Center, in these head-to-head battles with people like Lou Dobbs and Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity. I used to go on their shows, believe it or not. Back then, they would actually put somebody like me on their shows uh, and battle with them. So a, a small example of that is I was in something like a six-year fight with Lou Dobbs, who uh, many will remember had a nightly show on CNN for years. And in that show, every single day, he would do a segment on the borders called Broken Borders, in which he would tell a series of lies about immigrants. But, you know, Dobbs and I got into it in particular over this claim he made that immigrants were responsible for an epidemic of leprosy. He claimed there had been 3,000 new cases uh, in the prior three years and that this was a huge burgeoning thing. It was a complete fabricated lie. But in any case, you know, in that case, I was able to ultimately go on his show and say, the person who you're getting this from, a woman now dead, Madeline Cosman, is not a doctor. She knows nothing about immigration. She knows nothing about disease. Uh, in fact, she's a crazy woman who we at the Southern Poverty Law Center once documented telling an audience that the men who emigrate from Mexico, they are all rapists. Uh, mostly they rape uh, young girls, but some specialize in boys and others specialize in nuns. She was talking about all immigrants from Mexico to this country. So in any case, it's that kind of thing. I mean, I think we are forced to take on these people uh, and even more so in the age or the immediate aftermath of the age of Trump, right? In which we have completely false things being said to millions and millions and millions of people in this country and around the world that are utterly false. 
It is a battle. It's head spinning. What's head spinning too now is it, when you can have a split screen on TV where you, you can uh, have, let's say, Trump or someone saying something. And then he can say, I never said that. Or followers can say, he never said that. And so then I think what happens is people go on to the sort of automatic pilot. This is too much. and This doesn't make sense. We can't combat this. So we're just going to go about our business. I think people get overwhelmed when there's so much that doesn't make sense and so much that doesn't follow a logical sequence. And yet it's so critically important because, you know, the analogy maybe is police brutality, right? I mean, the vast majority of white people in the United States of America basically didn't believe it was a problem. Well, the whole world, cell phones changed that whole world. I'm not saying that, you know, every white person in America has had an awakening and realized uh, that things are pretty bad between the police and African-Americans, but many millions of people have. So, and it's the same thing when uh, people say Trump never said that. Well, then CNN or whoever it is, is kind of obliged to put on the footage that shows, look, here he is on television in front of a camera saying precisely what you just told me he never said. Right, exactly. So then part of what it seems that you've been needing to do for a long time with collecting data with uh, through your work through the Southern Poverty Law Center and now the Center for Analysis, there is so much that's growing, so much for you to keep track of. Do you feel like it makes people lean in when they hear about it or kind of lean back because it's too overwhelming? And how do you get people engaged and not too overwhelmed to see it? Well, I guess the answer is it's, it's not very easy. Uh, you know, there is no easy way to do that. Some people are more inclined, uh, are more willing to kind of take on the fight. But, you know, look at the enormous numbers of people who basically don't want to deal with the sort of the back and forth about vaccines in this country. Do they work? Do they not work? You know, I mean, uh, to me, anybody with two brain cells to rub together understands that vaccines work and that this vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, works particularly well. But it is quite uh, an expedition to decide you're going to uh, go out and battle the vaccine deniers uh, uh, because it's a gigantic world. Like all things connected to the radical right, it's not merely Lou Dobbs or this evil Nazi leader or this Klansman. It is an enormous infrastructure of hate, if you will, or of conspiracy theories, right? There are large groups, there are foundations, there are political action committees, there are very prominent individuals in kind of all walks of life, all of whom are in certain ways connected to this world, or many of whom are connected to this world. So it's uh, there are no simple answers, right? I mean, Getting uh, Dobbs kicked off of CNN and then thrown off of Fox Business, you know, was a small victory for the world, but it didn't uh, cure what ails us. Right. No. And so I think I want to be able to pick up a couple of different subjects with you. And I realize I'm also curious, and I know people listening to this podcast are usually curious about this. What prompted your interest even in doing this work? So if we can move back in time and then come back to the present, what propelled you into the work that you're doing now, even from when you, after you finished studying what you wanted to study and then sort of picked a career? Well, probably a big hunk of it is my father is a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he was not in the camps, but he was, a, you know, a small kid in a basically upper middle class family in Warsaw in 1939. 
and he and his mother and father and cousin and cousin's family escaped together. You know, incredibly harrowing story, strafed many times uh, as they made their way uh, north and ultimately got to Sweden. In any case, so some of that comes from my father, who is a very angry person to this day. He can't forgive the Germans. He can't stand the German accent. <laughs> you know, he loves Wagner, but he really loves, kind of hates him too, you know, that kind of thing. So that was with me from the beginning. You know, I was pretty much uh, on the left as a kid growing up. I was, you know, protested the Vietnam War and all that kind of thing. And then I got into journalism after going to the University of Chicago. And I adored journalism. It was, you know, all of a sudden, I was in a world where I was seeing things I had only heard about or even things I'd never heard about. You know, watching Chicago police officers pull bodies out of the river. My God. In any case, in that world, I got particularly interested in skinheads. I was uh, for a time in a paper in Dallas uh, when skinheads first appeared there. But, you know, none of that. I was no expert, not remotely. I was a general assignment newspaper reporter. I did a lot of traveling. But ultimately... Uh, I wound up working uh, for USA Today. I was there south. I covered the Southwest for them. I was in effect a bureau chief. But literally one week, I think it was six days after I started at USA Today, Waco began. You know, six days after I took this job on and the Sunday morning, I got a frantic call. You've got to get to Waco immediately. And it all kind of spun out from there. So I was there for all 51 days of the siege. I then covered the trial of the surviving Davidians. Then two years later, of course, the Oklahoma City bomb. And again, I was based in Dallas, so I was close. I actually got on uh, the last plane out of Dallas that morning because a storm was coming in. Uh, got to Oklahoma City by, I think it was about 11.15 in the morning. And, you know, the building was still on fire. There were something like 85 cars in the parking lot around the Murrah building, also on fire. So I was in the thick of that and the same thing. I was in, in Oklahoma City for months and months and months, then running around the country after various militia angles, connections of McVeigh and Nichols uh, to various groups, uh, and ultimately covered also from gavel to gavel uh, the trial of McVeigh uh, in Denver. So all of that, you know, I, I still was no expert, but I was really interested in this world and started to feel that, you know, I mean, I had a good job and wrote a lot of so-called cover stories, front page stories for the USA Today. But I just began to feel that it's not enough to write interesting stories that people read over their coffee in the morning, that, you know, I felt like this was something that was immediate. It was growing, and this was before global warming, seemed like probably the main problem facing the world, the rise of the radical right and these kinds of uh, divisions that we're living through right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, that's so fascinating. And, and uh, the crossover, I want to also make note that also being raised in a family with Holocaust history, um, with sort of a propulsion into activism, the the my, my my rabbi growing up, Rabbi Schulweis, who had talks a lot or talked, unfortunately passed away, talked a lot about predicate theology, sort of the the therefore, what are you going to do about it? Not enough just to believe, what are you going to do about it? There was this feeling about the fact that there's so much to be done. Sometimes it gets overwhelming and it's hard to sort of pick the angle that you're going to take um, and feel like also that you're doing enough. But I remember also soon after becoming a therapist and working with people who were escaping out of the Scientology building in Los Angeles, because my office was in Hollywood and they're climbing out windows and thinking, what is this? Then also the Waco siege, I think in 93, um, if I 
remembering correctly. Finding that it was so, of course, so sad, but also seeing that the people who were there, the, the ATF police sort of were out of their league, didn't know how to respond to this, but understandably so. And also to a great degree, weren't listening to the people who were guiding them about what to do and what not to do and how to make it less literally incendiary. What came from that too, that I remember has been very useful in my work is the uh, analyses done by um, Dr. Bruce Perry, who worked with the kids who, uh, he's a psychiatrist who worked with the kids who had been taken off the compound for a period of time and noticed that their resting heart rate was incredibly high as though they were traumatized or they were in hypervigilance in fight or flight mode all the time. And so there've been a lot of studies from that about what this does to children growing up in these environments, even later on in life and how much they have the capacity to handle stress. Also, you can seem fine on the outside, which is what happens with a lot of people who have been involved in cults. They learn to have an outward persona that everything's fine, but internally, physiologically, everything is quite different. It was a fascinating time. And I'm wondering what it was like for you being there for such a long time, seeing the interplay between the people behind the walls and the, the professionals, law enforcement who were trying to deal with it. To be completely honest, uh, you know, at the time, it was very, very hard to be sympathetic to the Davidians. Uh, from the outside. Um, and let me say, by way of sort of leaping forward to the conclusion that, you know, it's worth saying, maybe even in this interview, that the things that the federal agents were accused of are almost universally untrue, right? So the idea that the federal government or the forces of the federal government deliberately murdered those people or set the fire, all of that is utter hogwash. In any event, how did it affect me? I mean, you know, I remember that by the time uh, the feds went in on the 51st day uh, of the siege, there was a feeling that was pretty strong among the journalists and probably among a number of Americans that it's about time somebody did something. Of course, you know, six hours later, three tiny licks of flame appeared in different places in the building. And, you know, within six or seven minutes, you realized that almost all those people were going to die that provoked kind of different reaction. You know, it was a very strange story to cover. I mean, I was never closer, like all journalists, than four miles away from the compound. So we saw very little of this. Of course, you know, when some of the children were sent out uh, in the early days of the siege, then we would see them as they went into court for various hearings, custody hearings, and so on. But, you know, it was not until a long time afterwards uh, that I ever talked to any of those people who had been in the siege and so on. But, you know, maybe it's worth saying that, I mean, certainly some of the trauma, what you're talking about, but the heart rate and so on, I'm sure, you know, a little bit of that for some of those kids was what they'd been subjected to for even the few short days when they had been inside during the siege by federal forces. It was a scary thing. The place was surrounded by tanks. Uh, and armored, armored vehicles and so on. But I'd like to point out that, of course, Koresh had been traumatizing these kids sexually, as is well known, and it is certainly a fact that he was sleeping with 13, 14, 15-year-old girls. But also, he was constantly haranguing them and their parents about 
the imminent battle of Babylon. At any moment, the federal government is going to come in here and they're going to murder all of us. And it's going to be kind of a good thing because we're all going to ascend to heaven. Well, you know, you know better than I, a professional in the field, that can't be good for kids in that situation. And Koresh was also a bit of a, uh, a bit violent with the kids, you know, like spank them, spank them hard, sometimes with, uh, you know, some wooden paddle and so on. You know, that was just a small part of it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think the physiological impact was certainly from growing up there. No question. And for a lot of people I've worked with who have lived through sieges and where there's been a raid on their compound, for some, that was the scary part. For some, it was finally, finally, we're going to get rescued from this. So it, it's good for people to know that, that for some, it will be traumatizing. And for others, it will be that the answer to the prayers they've had for many, many years. And it doesn't always work out well, but still, for some, they, they had no idea that there were people outside who actually cared about what was happening inside. And it renews their faith in that. It never seemed to get through to the Davidians, though, did it? I mean, when that building caught on fire, and of course, the Davidians set the fire themselves, Nine people came out. Nine people stumbled out of the flames. Seventy-five people were either burned alive or crushed beneath falling walls. Or in the case of 20 of them, they were murdered by other Davidians, apparently mercy killings, shot with guns. Uh, The Davidians, you know, these godly people, stabbed to death a three-year-old boy uh, in order to, I guess, save him from burning alive in the flames. But my God, just saying the opposite. They had many, many chances to come out, and uh, Koresh's hold on them was such that the vast majority of them didn't. That's right. Yeah. And I think unless you understand about the, the mindset, it's hard to understand why that happens and that it's a benevolent killing according to them on the inside. And it's very head spinning to people on the outside. Part of what David Koresh and others, uh, even Warren Jeffs, because I was involved with the raid on his compound, the FLDS compound, there is this conspiratorial thinking. I mean, it's not a new thing. The, The outside is horrible. You need us to protect yourself from these exaggerated views of all that's wrong. And we're also gonna keep your blinders on. We're gonna keep you from seeing the world outside, that it actually can be filled with people who actually do care and also who are not gonna be abusive to you. But instead, there is this idea that there is an imminent threat And so, so much of what activates people, as we see, is this idea of an imminent threat, real or imagined. And I would just point out that conspiracy theories serve another purpose, which is not just to say there's an imminent threat, Babylon is about to invade our compound, but it is is a way of explaining a very complex world with a lot of gray hues in it, in incredibly simple and black and white terms. So why are farmers in trouble in the United States? must be the Jews, right? Why was there so much sentiment for gun control? It's an international conspiracy by the elites to take our guns away, and on and on and on. So for people who are perhaps naturally a bit simple-minded or simply can't find a way to deal with the complexities of the world, and the world is complex and more complex every, every day, this is an easy way to explain what's going on. Why does America not look like the America of my forefathers? Why isn't it a 
Christian white country built by and for Christian white people? Why do I look across the street and I see people, you know, they're wearing turbans on their heads or they're not speaking English or they worship some strange God that I don't know anything about? You know, it must be a plot to do us in. And this is, you know, the great replacement to conspiracy theory or the white genocide theory, because fill in the malefactor of your choice, the Jews, the government, global elites, uh, the United Nations, the Council on Foreign Relations, whoever the evildoer is, it's because they are out to destroy our society and destroy us. And of course, that makes one's reaction a little easier too, right? Well, I guess all we have to do is pick up the gun and take care of those people, you know, or deport them all or send them all to prison. But in some way, you know, you've isolated the evil in a kind of easy to comprehend figure. Okay, right. What used to be seen as delusional is not so much anymore. And so there is kind of a desensitization to things that would normally sound, for lack of a better clinical term, crazy. And now it's just, it must be Tuesday. And so the fact that people can talk about the lizard people and people can talk about a whole variety of other things, even the flat earth society, that we're so used to hearing it now that there is a sense of, oh, yeah you know, that possibly can happen. Or yeah, those people believe in that as opposed to they really need help. But I also know there are a lot of people who have what I'm almost calling kind of situational psychosis, that it's not necessarily how they're wired, but it's the way they're talking and it's the way they're believing. And so how do you combat that? I'm wondering from the trends that you've seen growing, where have the conspiracy theories sort of moved? The conspiracy theories I know that I've heard of, what are some of the ones that you've heard of that you think are actually particularly important for us to know about these newer trends of conspiracies? Let me first answer a somewhat different question, you know, talking about where they come from. Uh, You know, it's maybe worth remembering that in the 1960s, the John Birch Society was running around a kind of ultra-right society that was certainly racist, but they hid the racism fairly well. Not anti-Semitic particularly, but very involved in anti-communist conspiracy theories, right? There's a communist and, you know, the State Department's full of communists, uh, the schools are full of communists and so on. And the John Birch Society wound up making so many accusations that were, you know, McCarthyite accusations, completely wild without any foundation in reality. William Buckley, right, prominent right-wing intellectual, came out and famously called out the John Birch Society and said words to the effect of, if these people are not thrown out of the conservative movement, the conservative movement in America will be dead. It will die uh, of this poison. And that actually resulted in the kind of exile of the John Birch Society from the kind of corridors of power in mainstream politics for 30 or 40 years. We're in a, as you pointed out, right, we're in a completely different situation now. You know, and some reasons for that, first of all, as the you know, famous historian Richard Hostetter points out, you know, his book, the, American, the Paranoid Style in American Politics, his famous book, Americans are particularly, for whatever reason, given to conspiratorial thinking. I think that's very clear, although there's a fair amount of it in Europe and elsewhere. Another piece of it, it seems to me, is the internet and social media. I think an important thing to think about is is that the 1960s were also a very polarized time. I mean, there were people who were for the Vietnam War and people who were very much against the Vietnam War. There was the kind of the burgeoning counterculture, right? Hippies running around their enemies, right? And yet, everyone was more or less operating on the same sets of facts. Because 
in a given town where I grew up, there were two television stations. Even if you lived in a big city, there might be two newspapers. So essentially, they were all reporting the same thing. You know, it might have been a little slanted one way or another, but basically the facts were being presented to everybody in more or less the same ways. And that's wildly different now. So now it's ideology shopping. Whatever you want to believe, you want to believe there are lizard people out there or that the Jews are meeting in a graveyard in Prague to destroy the rest of us or gay men have a secret plan to convert all our children to homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a huge number of internet pages and so on that will tell you you're absolutely right. And then there are some real evil people, like some of these uh, so-called doctors and chiropractors, right, who are telling people absolutely false things about vaccinations. I mean, those people are responsible for people dying. And yet those ideas have gone viral in so many ways. So, I mean, it's true. I think the conspiracy theories you asked about how they're evolving. I mean, how we've gotten to the place where, you know, QAnon conspiracy theory, which is an unbelievably ridiculous theory. But is it really any more ridiculous than believing that there are lizard people out there or aliens among us? Uh, I don't think so. So I'm not sure that each particular conspiracy theory is so important to know about as to understand how prevalent they are and how people use them to explain their circumstances. You know, I remember at the kind of the peak of the first wave of the militia movement in the, the late 1990s, you know, there was a militia theory that was actually quite widespread at the time that the reason that American farmers were having troubles with their crops and many were losing their farms as a result was because there's a secret weather machine under the city of Brussels in Belgium, which is being used by the evil global elites, the malefactors, to destroy American farmers because by destroying American farmers, you know, they'll bring the nation to its knees and, you know, bad things will follow. So, I mean, there are an enormous number of these theories. I mean, to, you asked about the evolution of them. I mean, to me, this is an precisely answering your question, but to me, one of the most interesting things uh, that has happened over the last 40 years or so has been the Nazification of the radical right. And, you know, what I mean by that is the idea that certainly there was anti-Semitism in the United States, uh, 1920s, 1930s, and even going back to the beginning to a small extent. But anti-Semitism in the United States has always been vastly below the level of anti-Semitism in Europe, right, where it goes back to the Middle Ages and uh, you know, all of that, uh, the blood libel and so on and so on. So how is it that the American, so the American, what, what has happened in the last 30 or 40 years is that while it used to be black people were sort of the number one hated group, right? An, an artifact of slavery of our original sin, that has become less and less so in the eyes of the radical right. I'm not saying that the radical right in the United States loves Black people. They don't. But they have more and more come around to the view that Black people, immigrants, brown people, even gay people, you know, their whole list of enemies, they are all being manipulated by the ultimate evil ones, the Jews. And, you know, there are a number of reasons for this, quite a number, including the theology knows Christian identity, which was spread in the radical right a lot, and which basically, it's very complicated, but basically says that Jews are descended from a union, a sexual union of Eve and Satan in the Garden of Eden, right? That's where Jews come from. Cain was the first Jew, right? And, on, but, and then there are a lot of other things going on as well. For one thing, I think the real change that's going on in the world is globalization and the discontents it has sort of wrought. 
And in a world where globalists and globalization are seen as the enemy of the identity of peoples, right? White people, black people, you know, this nation, that nation, the international Jew, quote unquote, right? The ancient stereotype of the international Jew fits very well. This is a person, this is a tribe who cares only about themselves, uh, who don't care if they don't give a damn about the country they happen to live in, the United States or France or Belgium or wherever it may be, right? So they're essentially kind of natively traders. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. But I think that's a very important trend in what we're seeing on the right and the kind of conspiracy theories and ideology of the right. This increasing identification, which came to the attention of kind of the larger world, the world that watches TV news once in a while, uh, in 2017 in Charlottesville, right? Where the, ch the chanters, the, the marchers are chanting, you know, Jews will not replace us. Juden raus, right? Jews out, just like the real Nazis, you know, seek heiling uh, and all of the rest of it. And so, you know, that's where we are. I would argue that that represents a kind of further radicalization of an already radical, radical right. Right. I mean, so much of what you're saying today that people are also hearing is going to be taking people's breath away. It's a very hard thing to hear all this information, not know what to do about it. That's something that I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about. I think also in line with what you were just saying, when things and when the world becomes more and more Orwellian, then I think we, everyone should take notice. When the truth tellers, the fact checkers are the evil ones, when there is this sort of informational echo chamber, closed loop, where you can only get your information from inside, and the, the evil ones are the ones who are telling you maybe a different point of view, or actually the scientists, the ones who, who really are studying this, the historians, then it is a very scary trajectory and there is a blindness, even though what, of course, in an Orwellian fashion and, and a very cultic fashion, people are being accused of being the opposite of what they are, that it's the ones who are saying this isn't true, that we're the ones who have our blinders on. I've gotten a lot of calls recently, actually, from children. I don't usually get calls from children. But because of QAnon and other things like it, I'm getting calls from middle schoolers, high schoolers who are saying my parents started a fist fight at the parent organization meeting at my school, and they were yelling about needing to save the children. But now I can't show my face at school. I'm afraid to go to school. So here they're yelling about saving the children. But what about their own children? What are they doing to their own families? And it is in, in a very, in, in those little small ways, not only just in a global way, but in people's living rooms, in people's kitchens, they're doing so much damage in an effort to be educating and protecting the public. They're not seeing what's right in front of them. And I find that so upsetting and, you know, disturbing. It's not new, but I think the dialogue has become so aggressive some of the hardest cases for me have been the conspiratorial cases, the QAnon cases, because of the aggression, because there isn't an ability now to have civility in the same way. It's like we are living in an age where it's not OK or you can't agree to disagree. And so I don't know if that's something you're seeing. Well, let me point out something that I think about as you're talking about this. I mean, one of the things that highlights is the unbelievable level of hypocrisy. Uh, among these movement people, right? 
you're a child molester, so I'm going to, you know, make life miserable for my own children. You know, it just goes on and on and on. And, you know, one of the things that are kind of somewhat related to what we're talking about that occurs to me is the anti-gay, the anti-LGBTQ groups, and in particularly these Christian right groups who are into conversion therapy, right? We are going to turn you from a homosexual man into a heterosexual man, right? That's the claim. And I only bring it up because I did a lot of work on these groups at one point. And the most remarkable thing about them of all is that almost all of the conversion therapy groups have collapsed because it turns out that their leaders, after years and years of struggling against what they call, quote unquote, unwanted same-sex attractions, they finally realize my God, I really am gay. And it's not because I want to rape children. It's not because I'm an evil person. It's because that's the way I was born. And by the way, I think I'm finally going to marry a man now. I mean, this happened again and again and again in these groups. Uh, they almost all collapsed literally because of that it happened over the course of about 25 years, but virtually every one of those groups fell apart. Yeah, I mean, it shows a kind of thinking that is um, <laughs> binary to say the least and won't until it's, you know, until very late in the game, won't accept evidence, right? And it's very much like these cultic ideas we've been talking about, I mean, right? One of the defining features that makes a group a cult is the idea that the leader or the leadership is keeping other information away from the, the followers, right? So if you're, I'm the cult leader and you're my follower, I definitely don't want you talking to your parents or your ex-boyfriend or or your cousin, right? Or, or your girlfriend from high school or whatever it may be, because that's presenting, that's giving you the alternative of, you know, factoring in uh, other ideas. Right. I would like to talk about the conversion therapy. I mean, you know, first, yes, going back to this, this idea of not being able to get information, what people don't realize that I think is important to realize is that people within movements have the least amount of information about them, typically, if they are these kinds of movements. People within cults have much less information about what the group really is than people on the outside because they're not allowed to access it. And they're also not allowed to talk to people who have left to find out why they've left and because they need to defame the other people or because fear is the ultimate control mechanism. Most cult leaders will say something bad will happen to you or to your loved ones if you talk to the people outside or like in Scientology, if you read information on the internet about our doctrine before you're ready, you're going to get cancer. So people are within this closed system and they can't get information. I think to go back to these conversion therapies, right? We hate to use the term therapy for, it's like these teen treatment centers where I put treatment in quotes. When people are not able to be openly gay, then they do need to hide themselves or they hate themselves or they're taught to hate themselves. And then there is this circular, I'm going to save you from this thing. And I'm also going to call off the scent, right? I'm going to have you not notice what's true about me. And I'm not even going to notice what's true about me. But I think it comes because there's a culture within certain environments of needing to hide who you are particularly if you're raised in a religious family, right? I mean, that's where the vast majority uh, of victims of conversion therapy, you know, teenagers who are sent off to some camp in the woods someplace, you know, and what's maybe worth pointing out is that a lot of the parents, some of the parents are really awful, 
but they're not kicking their kids out of the house like some parents do because they've, you know, the kid has announced that he's gay. They think they're doing the best thing, right? They think based on what they're taught in their denominations, their churches, that their kids are, their lives are going to be ruined. They're going to have terrible lives. They're going to get dread diseases and die young. They're never going to have a happy family You know all these kinds of things. So at least some of the parents are trying to help the kids uh, and sending them off into these situations. You know, maybe another thing worth pointing out about conversion therapy was while Many of those people, I think probably the bulk of people who led those groups and created those groups, did so with some sort of sincere belief that they could really help people. There's also a pretty cynical side to the whole idea of conversion therapy, which was the following. These guys, and we're talking about men, uh, who led these Christian right groups and really did not like gay people, gay men in particular, we're looking for, they more and more had come to be pictured in the larger society as haters, right? People who hate gay men, they hate homosexuals. If you think of them like that, well, they're really not much different than white supremacists, right? People who hate black people. So it was starting to get to them. The, the, that kind of idea was more and more widespread in the society, especially as gay people were more and more accepted. And that undoubtedly happened, right, in our society. And, you know, part of that was just the increasing visibility uh, of gay people in general, so that, you know, everybody had a brother or someone you knew at work or a cousin or or they saw people on TV who were, you know, gay and seemed to be shock of shocks, perfectly normal, right? And have nice relationships with people and have families and so on. They don't seem like child rapists, um, uh, you know, which of course is not true anyway, and so on. So the Christian right, which had spent so much of its energy attacking gay people, well, supposedly just homosexuality, but in fact, really attacking gay people. These are perverts. They do disgusting things. You wouldn't even want to know what they do, that kind of thing. They were looking for a new way of continuing uh, the jihad, as it were. And that new way was to say, well, no, we're, homosexuality, it's really just a sin like any other. But guess what? Here's the good news. It can be cured. So we are not attacking the people who are gay. We're saying, well, they're fallen humans just like every other human has fallen in Christian ideology, right? Uh, we just want to help them. We're good guys. We're not calling them names or saying they're uh, lesser human beings. So, you know, that was sort of the idea behind the conversion therapy movement and why it really took off for a few years. I mean, at one point recently, a particular academic uh, estimated that one in three teenagers in America and one in three gay teenagers in America had been subjected to some form of conversion therapy. That's pretty shocking, uh, given that it's now very well established that these kids very often end up with, you know, really lasting traumas as a result. Uh, uh, you know, and the practices of some of these conversion therapy groups, you know, are really out there. They're really out there and torturous. Yeah. Well, I mean, they no longer give people shock therapy, right? They don't let, attach electrodes to your, you know, gonads, right? And then show you pictures of gay sex, right? To conversion therapy, right? So it's, it got a little bit better than some of the really crazy stuff, administering insulin shock and so on to people. 
I mean, my God, you know, in the past, there's there's a guy who used to transplant a testicle from a straight man to to a gay man, and this supposedly completely converted him to a heterosexual and so on. You know, so it's a little less extreme than that. But uh, I mean, you know, I wrote about one particular group that did things like engage in nude counseling sessions. You know, I mean, it just went on and on and on. I mean, it was really wild. Thankfully, most of those groups have been destroyed. Quite a few states, I think eight or nine states, now ban uh, conversion therapy to teens, to underage people under the age of 18. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Mark. It is so nice to talk to someone who I truly enjoy talking to, who I can share data with, and who I learn so much from. It's really quite, quite nice. It's a perk of uh, doing this podcast. So thank you to Mark, first of all, for all of the work that he does just in his life and all the work that he has done and all the work I know he's going to continue to do. He spoke today, and we'll continue his conversation next week. But today, I want to really focus on this idea of learning the lessons of history. We don't remember what came before us a lot of the time. We have convenient amnesia. I actually think that's why women have more than one child, because if they remembered every second of their giving birth moment, I don't know if they would do it again. So thank goodness, actually, that we have some selective amnesia, but it is sometimes at our peril. There's this wonderful quote that I came across, and there are a lot of quotes like it, but I like the way this one is worded by Aldous Huxley, that men do not learn very much from the lessons of history is the most important of all the lessons that history has to teach. I think it is very true that it is very, very important for us to remember that we do need to take stock. We do actually need to pay attention in history class. But I think history teachers also need to help us foster a sense of connection. Why things are happening the way they're happening now? What has led up to this? and not just isolate certain time frames and teach those without there being this sense of connectedness to the rest of the world, to our common history, to other people's histories, and as a predictor, potentially, of the future. The quote by George Santayana, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it, is such an important phrase because the word cannot is different than the way it's usually quoted, which is those who do not learn, but this is those who cannot learn. I think there are people who decide not to learn. I think there are people who just don't care. I think there are people who do feel this sort of mm, kind of present tense narcissism here I am. This is where the earth began. This is where history started, at least for me. And so that's not seeing your place 
as part of a whole. Something else that I think is so fundamental to the fact that we don't and cannot or choose not to learn from the lessons of history is that even those who do and do remember history and do study history still repeat mistakes of the past. So many mistakes are connected to human drives, are connected to ego needs, are connected to paranoia and fear of the other. And so you can think that you're taking on a whole new group of people and you're fighting a whole different war, but it's the same idea, just a different time and a different place. It would be wonderful if we could do it a different way. It would be wonderful if we could remember that we are part of something bigger. It would be wonderful if we could learn from the lessons of history. But it would also be wonderful if other people cared about that as much as some others do. We see that also through global warming. Whether you believe in it or not, it is a thing. And it's based in scientific fact. But so many people feel like, well, mm, who cares if I'm using this aerosol can? And who cares if I'm throwing this into the ocean? What's one person going to do? What kind of damage can I do? It is so important for people to see the floating islands of garbage. It is so important for people to have proof of the impact they have on each other and the impact they have on the world. Not in a damning way, not in a finger-pointing way, but in the attempt, I think, to have people become aware that if everyone feels that way, so what if I do this? So what if I pass by someone who needs my help and I don't help? So what if I walk by when someone is beating somebody else up? What kind of world would it be if we all did that? So take time if you can, whether you know history or not, although it's interesting to learn. And unfortunately, some history teachers are more interesting to listen to than others. But take time to think about your place in the world as a way to see it as a motivator. What can I do? What can I change? What can I be a part of? And also, what movement can I be a part of that will change the course of history, that will do things differently? I think we have a certain hubris that comes from this sort of magical thinking that now we have the science to cure things and now we have the technology to fight things. But again, the primal drive is there to create damage, to create mayhem to create division. And so if we think we're above it all, we're not, even if we have technology to show how advanced we are. At the end of the day, there's still going to be what feels to me between countries like a bar fight. It is very base and I think unnecessary, but I want us to be able to lift ourselves up and see that we are better than this.
and we can be better than this. If you think that one of the lessons from history is that there have been people throughout history who have said, this thing that's been happening, that's been going awry, I'm going to make sure to stop it. Or I'm going to make sure that, for example, sort of the multi-generational continuation of abuse that happens in families, I'm going to make sure it stops with me. I'm going to do my part in small ways and in big ways to change the course of life now and in the future. We can't change the course of history, but we can definitely change the course of tomorrow. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.